Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a lecturer, a climate corruption reporter and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Ella Saltmarsh. Ella is a narrative expert, a storyteller extraordinaire. She is working with national, regional, local governments all around the world, working with policymakers to help them understand how the stories they tell themselves and peddle out to their public are impacting their ability to confront the climate crisis. Ella joins me to discuss storytelling principles, the foundations of the stories that we need to be telling in order to imagine and embody a better future. She explains the project that she's working on time, how to move from short-term vision to long-term visions, encouraging people to think of themselves as ancestors to the unborn future generations. How can we be a good ancestor? What can we leave behind? What are the principles that drive those decisions? She talks about the huge amount of stories that we are up against as a public, whether it's right-wing propaganda, whether it's a barrage of endless messages from the advertising industry, popular culture, and how also to start to seed change and a different way of telling stories and the different kinds of stories that we emphasize in popular culture and how that is such an important part of the fight. Ella's been working on stories for, well, her entire life, and she's been working on the climate crisis for 16 years. So strap in, make notes, I did, and enjoy everything she has to say. There is also a wonderful exercise at the end of the episode. I highly recommend closing your eyes. You will need to close your eyes for it, by the way, so don't listen to this while you're driving, um, and engaging with it at the end. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on Patreon. By signing up, you'll also get access to the weekly article I write inspired by each interview. Thank you to everyone who has signed up and is supporting the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who keep the project going every week. Ella, thank you so much for joining me on Planet Critical. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thanks, Rachel. I am very excited for this conversation. As am I. I've had a lot of meetings with this background of the room that you're in, so it's amazing to see you know, the other brain in the house who works on this. Well, we've got a third brain who's 20 months, so I've got to say is like the most <laughs> dominant brain in the house. At the <laughs> I mean, you literally have to barricade the door. He's incredibly strong for a 20-month-year-old and whatever we use to try and shut the office door, he'll like, he'll hammer his way in. Good. I think that's, that's the kind of kid you want to raise, resilient and determined. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely that. So give us some background about what, where you come from and what you do. You are defiantly plural, uh, I read on your website, which is just such a phenomenal way to describe oneself. Yeah, so um, I have had many strands to my life, um, but one of the golden threads that has gone through it is story and narrative. And so much of my work in very different ways has been about working with story. Um, and kind of thinking back to the origins of that, I grew up on a farm without a TV uh, and with books. And no. so like the they like books were my world from when I was so young. Um, 
And uh, I've continued. I, I kind of I feel like it's a lifelong both love of story, but I also feel like I'm a lifelong student of story. Mm. I'm constantly learning new things about the craft of storytelling, about its potency, um, about the science of storytelling. Mm. Um, and that has taken many different forms over the years. So I'm trained as an anthropologist. Um, and spent the first part of my career working as an anthropologist overseas in international development um, cool. and began working on climate um, way back in around 2005. Right. Um, and back then uh, I got a fellowship to look at climate change comms. Um, and so I spent a year uh, back in 2005, 2006, um, looking at how climate change was being communicated in different parts of the world, mm. going to look at what infrastructure was already there, what advocacy was already existing. Mm. And then through that kind of got into work that was about growing and supporting climate advocacy, um, working with funders, uh, working with civil society organisations and working a lot overseas. And I think through that work, I began to notice some things um, mm -hmm. and to, yeah, to, to want to start to go deeper. So there was this feeling that some of the work I was doing was very much about putting sticking plasters on problems. And there was this question about, well, what, how do we start addressing the root causes of these issues and of these huge, you know, these huge juggernaut issues that are hurtling towards us, like climate change, like biodiversity loss. Mm. Um, and the things that came to me were firstly um, about the importance of working systemically. So the importance of working in systems. So I came back to the UK, uh, this was over a decade ago, and co-founded an organisation called The Point People, which was all about, it was a network of women, and it's all about how do we work systemically. And so it's, with that mm. group, we work to build the field in the UK of systems change, to build new language around systems change and mm. to help actually do the work of it. And then the other side um, of addressing the root cause was culture and really seeing that um, that all these issues we're working on are nested in narrative and that if we want to shift these issues, we need to be working with culture, not mm. just with environmental advocacy, but with cult the culture that kind of billions um, gets put into every year. So popular entertainment, the TV we yes. watch, the music we listen to. Um, the adverts we scroll through, that actually, uh, if we want to shift uh, to a more regenerative society at the speed we need to, we're going to have to work with those kind of engines of story, those engines of culture, and to stop them working against us. Um, and so with that, I came back to the UK and co-founded a different organisation um, called the Comms Lab, which is all about the advertising industry and how mm. we grow movements in the advertising industry. And that work continued uh, for a decade and has gone on one of the organisations that we incubated, the Purpose Disruptors are doing awesome work, um, building radical movements led by industry insiders. Um, mm. And so that's really exciting to kind of see that work, which, you know, and all of this work, most most things take at least 10 years, I've decided <laughs> now. And, and you know, both of those did. Um, but alongside all of that, I had my own practice as a writer. So writing, I was a kind of, in my 20s, I wrote that novel that never got published. Mm. And then I just kept writing drama um, and I started writing for film and TV. And so I had my kind of, 
of, I had one side of myself that was the, the writer and then I had the other side of myself and I kept them quite separate. Mm. And I was a bit embarrassed about the fact I had these two different sides of myself. I felt like it somehow undermined my credibility. I didn't want anyone in the different worlds to really know right. that I was doing the other. And then like a few wise people, probably about six years ago, started saying to me, well, why don't you bring these worlds together more? Like, why don't you look at the role of story in systemic change? Um, you know, your like your weird combination of <laughs> careers could could be useful if you bring them together. Yeah. And so um, that's what I started to do. Um, I wrote a piece back in 2018 for the Stanford Social Innovation Review called The Role of Story in Systems Change. And in it, I kind of tried to make sense of the emerging field and to um, map it. And um, and I think that that article became a bit of a touchstone. It kind of it made me into a magnet. So suddenly anyone who was interested mm. in narrative came to me, which was so interesting because I, you know, I got to kind of um, just to meet and to understand what where the gaps are you know I had a yeah. lot of people coming to me um wanting work done and um and I didn't have the capacity to do it and so one of the things I realized quite early on was the importance of growing the field for this work of growing mm. support for it amongst funders for supporting civil society organizations to do it and actually not and so I at that point wasn't like oh, I'm just going to go and do a load of narrative consultancy it was like actually how do we how do we grow this field and so mm. um yeah so then I've kind of embarked on that side of the work which has been working a lot with funders uh with CSOs with commercial creativity um to kind of take this practice forward um and then bringing us back to the present day, um, <laughs> most recently, the form that that's taken has been um, something called the Reset Narratives Community, um, which I uh, co-founded with someone who you know very well, Paddy. Um, and that's a community uh, that crosses the environment, new economy and social justice space. Right. And the idea behind that uh, community is it is a space for um, members to share their insights around narrative. So the idea is that instead of individual organisations uh, doing their research narrative strategy alone, how do we start to make it more collective? Um, how do we be more mm. movement generous with the narrative work that we're doing? Mm. And how do we talk across movements so that we start to develop a much more coherent story, mm -hmm. um, a, a much more compelling, uh, effective story um, mm -hmm. about the future we're going to. So there's that work. Um, there's still the work. I'm still doing this work, helping build the field, um, helping to kind of unlock funding in this space. Um, and then the third um, area of work is something called the Long Time Project. Um, and that really started off um, kind of, I was really interested in what were, what are some of the deeper stories we're going to need um, in this moment? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's something we'll come on to talk about because uh, I think this work is very much about, yes, developing messages and stories that work now that are responsive. Mm -hmm. You know, we can talk about, you know, this particular moment in the UK with the way that the climate and cost of living crises are being pitted against each other, the kinds of stories we're going to need to respond to this kind of moment, but also what are the kind of deeper, longer stories that we need to build the world uh, that, well, to build a world that will have a future. 
Mm. Um, and I became really interested in time. Um, I read a friend of mine, Alex Evans, has written a book called The Myth Gap. Um, and in it, um, he talks about uh, some story principles. Um, uh, and one of those principles of the kinds of stories that we need was a story of a longer now. And I think through all this work, you know, through having spent 15 years working in climate, trying so many different ways of trying to move people, um, I was really curious about time. I was like, is there something in time? Is it's, It feels like there is something existential in time as a prism for caring about the future. So the work of the Long Time Project is all about how do we get people uh, to care about the future so that they take responsibility for it today. And it's all about cultivating cultures of stewardship at scale. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that um, I've focused so much work on it is also because of the research that shows that stewardship is one of the values that crosses different political groups. Mm. So for both right and left wing voters, stewardship matters to them. And when we're thinking about these bigger stories, we need to think um, beyond politics, uh, not because politics you know, isn't important and that so many of the answers we need are political, um, but more because we are going to need to speak to people at a deeper level. And um, so the Long Time Project is born, and I can talk a bit more detail about the work we're doing, um, but it is really about this deeper, this deeper mythic story that underpins our lives and um yeah and then at the moment you know i'm i'm doing this um messaging this moment project um which is very much about um this moment how we respond to this moment about the climate and cost of living crisis and so i kind of am often in terms of story stretched in the way that i'm describing between mm. the very immediate the very responsive the now and the kind of deep slow mythic um and in some ways i feel like that's a time scale. Perhaps that's not a bad time scale to be living in, um, but it also feels it, it can be quite a lot sometimes. This actually leads me onto a question that popped into my mind um, a few minutes ago uh, about coherent narratives, because one of the things that I think is so important with that you know when you explain to somebody what is what is a system what is system change it's like well it's just loads of bloody moving parts that create a bigger whole and the whole is not the sum of one of those things it is the relationship between all those things you know you have to just constantly try and zoom out when you're thinking about a system um and I suppose one of the things that I am uh concerned about is that the propaganda machine on whatever wing of politics um, has the easiest job to just peddle out one consistent lie, one consistent coherent narrative. Um, whereas the difficulty of trying to engage genuinely with reality and to uh, in enable change is to engage with the nuance of reality and especially the nuance around the climate crisis because it is a symptom of a systemic problem and so we need system change and so the stories that we need to tell there needs to be a plurality of stories actually it seems to me in order to find a way through because we need to make our systems more um, resilient which means diversifying them and yet the problem then is that you've got um, energy going into different stories, which is absolutely crucial in an ideal world. That would be how we li would live. But up against the monolith 
of a one singular coherent narrative. So you talked about coherent narrative and systems. How do you reconcile that tension between finding the one coherent narrative that can like educate uh, and move people towards a systems change versus the reality, which is the systems change will demand a diversity of story? I mean, that's why I've focused so much of my work on story principles. So I haven't spent my the last five years trying to write the new story, mm. um, but rather to think about what are the principles for the new stories? Um, and then how can we, as you suggest, uh, support the flourishing of a diversity of stories, um, mm. but that have those core principles or one of those core principles? And we can talk more about what, what those are. So I think that's one answer. Another is just understanding the different layers of story. So I think when it comes to political messaging, in this moment particularly, coherence is really important. Um, the public um, can get very confused uh, when there is a wide diversity of alternative messaging around mm. what a regenerative future can look like, our pathways there. There's often kind of a gap. There's like we're told about all these miraculous green jobs and a transition and and it all, it, I don't know, it doesn't feel very real. Um, mm. And so, you know, there's, there's whereas the um, kind of the, the counter forces, uh, the more regressive forces are, um, have got a really super coherent narrative that is very simple, very repeatable. You hear yeah. it on talk radio all the time. And so I think it's really important that we do the work across movements to bring more coherence to some of that immediate messaging whilst allowing for, you know, a huge plurality. But I think it's also helpful, and this takes us to come to some of the bigger narrative principles, to think about how we tell our stories. Because um, I think as a movement, um, we have fallen into a very kind of, into the trap of scientific rationality in the past. Um, right. You know, and it used to be back in, you know, back with the Greeks, they understood that we needed mythos and logos to tell a story. And then we had the scientific revolution, we had the kinds of eviction of mythos um, from, uh, I guess, from credibility. Um, and what that has meant in terms of movements is that we spent a long time, and I did this, you know, as a young com campaigner, I totally did this. I was like, if we just told people the truth, if we just told people how it is, then of course they'd realise we just have to tell them the truth hard enough and mm. then they will change. Mm. And that's just not how we work as humans. That's not how our brains work. We're super messy, irrational creatures. The truth does not always set us free. We <laughs> often don't act in our own best interests. And actually, story and emotion is incredibly important. And the right has understood that. And they've understood yeah. it much earlier than we yeah. have. Yeah. And so, but even today, you know, and I think there's been a lot of change over the last 10 to 15 years um, when it comes to this. And there's been just so much incredible work happening in this space. But it's really interesting in this moment in the UK where we're seeing um, the climate and cost of living crisis being pitted against each other consistently that there is a kind of knee-jerk response to come in with the facts, to start with the facts, because it's really hard when absolute blatant lies are being kind of peddled by government ministers. How do you not just jump in and be like, no, that's not true. This is the truth. Um, and yet, like, that is not going to move people. 
And, and it's not to say we don't need logos. We need the facts, but we need mythos. We need the narrative. We need the frame. We need a value for that fact to be embedded in for it to actually move people. Um, and, and, why, and why won't people believe it? Well, because we we need emotion. Emotions are what move us. So if if there is a way of bringing emotion into into the fact, um, bringing a frame, of bringing a value, um, you know, that value could be care, it could be freedom, it could be stewardship, um, you know, it could be stability. Uh, if you begin there and then go into the fact, uh, people will listen in a different way and it will have more potency. Um, okay. And that's just, you know, cognitive science shows, you know, we are these, we're such messy creatures. Um, and, you know, this idea of a rational economic man um, is another myth. <laughs> like, we are not rational. That was that was a very convenient myth, which is, you know, um, underpinned capitalism for so long. So yeah, the, the, but, soon, the sooner we acknowledged our, our emotional messiness and start to... Um, start to factor that into the way we talk, the better. The reason I'm pushing back is because I think it's important to understand what happened uh, with the the during the Enlightenment, mm -hmm. because it is sold as the you know this moment of sort of um, cultural evolution where uh, man man not human man elevated himself to you know the next uh, state of his uh, potentiality, uh, his capacity. And it does seem to, we are told that that is how the majority of effective communication was done for the past sort of 150, 200 odd years. Um, if you lead with the fact, you will be believed. And I think that it is so important to highlight that, that whilst that might have been the myth that was peddled out to people, that was absolutely not the strategy of anyone telling a story in order to gain power, hold on to power, uh, impact the world in any way. And I think it is also really important to highlight um, the fact that the discrediting of experts as well is something that the right has done recently, especially as the left has gained more ground and therefore had a louder voice and been talking about facts. Um, the left, you know, the left technically should be in the best position because like the fact, the facts are on the left side. This is this is what growth does. This is what capitalism does. This is what the climate crisis is coming from. Da 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 da. Um, and there has been an interesting effect with the right sort of realizing kind of what was happening and saying, oh, now is the moment that we discredit uh, experts. Actually, even though we've been saying that um, they've been running the world correctly, um, to uh, what is the word that I'm to hobble the irrationality of man. Um, and our emotional impulses. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what's kind of quite perplexing. If you look at the advertising industry, you know, like <laughs> they know you don't lead with the facts. Um, they've been doing an awesome job of um, telling stories, of, you know, using all kinds of emotional techniques to get mm. us to buy over the last 100 years. Um, and, you know, and as you say, so does anyone who has, um, well, obtained power democratically and even those who haven't have used yeah. emotion very effectively 
so yeah, I I completely agree. And and it's also really important to say that this work isn't about discrediting facts. It's saying mm, ah, yeah. we need both. We need mythos and logos. We you know if you just have mythos, then yes, it's fake news. You know, none of it is true. So Absolutely. you know, the, like facts are very very important. But you know, and you alluded to the Enlightenment, and I think it's really interesting just to go back there and spend a bit more time there because mm-hmm. when it comes to some of the stories that we are being lived by today you know they so many of them were strengthened and born in that moment you know this was Mm. a time when we changed how we thought about nature Um, and some of those changes had happened you know millennia before with the rise of agriculture Mm. Um, but if we come to the enlightenment and and particularly Francis Bacon um, I've been looking into him recently you know the the natural philosopher Francis Bacon but who Mm. was also uh, the chief prosecutor for the king Um, and in that role was responsible for torturing witches and Mm. um, and the language he developed this language around nature which is uh, extraordinary, like in its aggression, um, mm. and the way we are supposed to dominate nature. Um, I've actually, um, give me a moment. I'm gonna. Uh, I've got a book. I've got a book here. Um, excuse the clattering while I pull out. The book. <laughs> um, by um, which I really recommend. Uh, by Jeremy Lent called the Patterning Instinct. Yeah, I've interviewed Jeremy on the yeah. show. Oh, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah. So Jeremy in the book. Um, uh, he talks about Francis Bacon um, and he's got some of these quotes of his. Um, so he talks about, um, he ta- and he's got this kind of like prosecutorial zeal with the way he talks about nature. So mm. um, the scientific method may in truth dissect nature to discover the secrets locked in her bosom so that she may then be forced out of her natural state and squeezed and moulded. Oh Christ! Can you imagine? And then, and then um, he goes on to write, um, calling upon mankind to unite forces against the nature of things, to storm and occupy her castles and strongholds, and extend the bounds of human empire. So we've got this kind of like, you know, I mean, <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, classic Brit of the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean. <laughs> You know, anyway, and, and but that you know that idea of that was how we should treat nature yeah. and women um yeah became you know so embedded and you know and it was continued with everyone from Descartes to Newton um and through this we kind of developed this idea that the natural world had no intrinsic value yeah. and was just there to be dominated by us and then if you bring in kind of colonialism capitalism consumerism mm. and mm. these kind of insanely bloodily efficient uh, mm. systems that just ramp that up then that you know a large part of the reason that we're here today um and i think it's really important to start to acknowledge like what are some of these foundational stories and metaphors that underpin our lives because because story like narrative is like the water we swim in for a fish it's like we don't see it we do not see the stories we are living and a lot of this work is is helping make that visible to us so helping us understand those stories and then helping us author new ones both kind of individually and collectively um but thinking of some of these core metaphors and what alternative core metaphors that would be so much more life-giving would be is is a really important part of this work I think also understanding the power of unleashing a story because I was reading, I can't remember, something recently 
listening to an audiobook, um, something sciencey, and it was talking about uh, the scientific enlightenment and the fact that the reason, um, the way that science uh, became the sort of binarized equal and opposite uh, force and the language that was developed around it was because of the strength of the counterforce that scientists were against at that time from a, a, a religious zeal. Uh, so they had to, because they were the underdogs, they had to protect their work so much um, from claims of heresy and uh, heresy and um, even witchcraft and all this kind of thing. They had to capture in such particular rational terms in a sense in order to give it the fertile ground to eventually become to grow and I think that is such an important thing to kind of remember as well that there are many many good things or many bad things start with good intentions as well and it is this again it is this system it is this interlocking dynamic uh, and relationship of how things interplay with one another that lead us to where we are and that's why we also have to be so careful with the stories that we tell because they don't just remain static they become they they pass through the mouths of others and become other stories until you eventually rise at you know Francis Bacon who thinks that well, we've conquered, conquered, you know, all the people in the world. Let's like conquer all of the other things. Jeez, you know. Yeah, <gasps> yeah, absolutely. And I think that is really important in terms of systems, like being aware that what we're seeing today might not have been the intention of the people who contributed to building that system. Yeah. Yeah. And um, but you know, looking at also who we reify and deify. Um, mm. I spoke to Kate Rayworth. Um. Uh, last year and she was talking about you know how all those neoclassical economic economists might be shocked to see their ideas st still being used today they might Absolutely. say like that was a different world like what are yeah. you guys doing yeah. you yeah. should you know use use tools for your time yeah. uh instead of you know teaching tools from you know to you know all that time ago madness. so i think um but i think it's also important because so many of the systems we live in feel like they have been dropped from the heavens mm. and they derive their power from that they feel like they've been eternal they feel like they've been here forever they feel like mm. there's no alternative if we look at our you know, anything from our economics to our politics um they that they draw their power from the fact that we don't realize that they are things that have been created often to meet a very the interests of a very small elite. And yes. so the more we can tell stories, and that's partly again why so much of the work I do now is about time, the more we can tell stories that help people understand how these systems that dominate our lives um, came into existence and also to look around today and see how the emerging systems that are going to take us somewhere better are already here they're already mm. happening you know like yes. a lot of the work you're yes. doing on this podcast is like shining a light on that emerging system um, and to kind of build momentum around it so I think this this idea of of looking uh, with the torch of story um, across time mm. to help people gain a greater sense of agency in yes. shaping the systems they live in is is really important. Absolutely. I've got an essay, uh, or I had an essay sort of come out recently, and it was um, essentially saying that uh, the most important thing is just to begin, uh, as sort of John Alexander says, and that perhaps 
what people don't understand is we are so sort of seemingly fossilized in the current paradigm and the current story, the current myth that we live in of capitalism and of being uh, disempowered agents that um, even though the idea of change is scary, it is only change. Uh, it is only scary because we see it through the lens of the current world that we live in, which is that we can put a lot of effort into change, perhaps. Uh, but things never do seem to change because what we exercise is our democratic right only at the polls. Whereas to put even more effort in, to take agency into your own hands, to build a thing with your community by yourself or with your friends, uh, to create a new component, something else, that will incur a systemic change along the way. And the very future, the very unknowable future that seems so scary when sort of caught in the jaws of capitalism that unknowability becomes less frightening when you're taking agency over it yourself because at least you know that you are doing everything in your power to change it for the better. Whereas right now, I think we're all aware, well, I say we, but people are very aware perhaps that there is seemingly very little they can do. And that is why the future, the unknowable future is so frightening because we're all sort of victims of the story that we've been told. And that's why story is so important to help mm. us take those first steps. And I think You've raised a really important point about some of the different ways we can use story to change a system. Mm. And so I think have you, there's the Bacana two loops model of systems change, um, which I've never tried to explain. I normally do it with a diagram, but I'm going to try and explain <laughs> it and see if I can manage. Um, so if you um, take your left hand and yep. make a little kind of uh, arch with it, and then if you take your right hand and turn it upside down, and create a kind of bowl with it mm -hmm. and move it so that it's kind of like um, half underneath your top hand. <laughs> Listeners, <laughs> how's that going for you? <laughs> so this is the, these are the two loops. So your okay. left hand is the existing system, the, the yeah. dominant system, the system that is in decline. The right hand, so which is kind of um, a moving, an arc that's moving upwards, is the emerging system. Okay. So there's different ways we can use story in this beautiful hand <laughs> dance that we're doing. Um, so the first, which is traditionally how we've used story a lot in the mm. environment movement, is on the left hand, is on looking the at the top hand. Yeah, how we um, tell stories that help bring down the dominant system, how we expose the cracks in that system, yeah. how we show that it isn't working. And this is super important work. We have to yeah. do this. It's not saying this isn't important work, mm. but it's where so much of our work has been. And if we look at the kind of bottom hands, my right hand, um, the stories that tell us, um, A, that show the work already happening but also then enable us to kind of start to imagine what different futures yeah. might look like like yeah. there we have so few stories and so mm. it's no wonder people are scared and stuck it's no wonder we feel we can't move from the system that we live in and I think over the last two years or so there's been this collective realization that we need more stories that mm. take us to a regenerative future and so we've seen the kind of blossoming of all the work around imagination infrastructure um around social imagination uh around like how how do we start to do this um and i think it's it's just the starting to blossom this field and you know it has its roots there's lots of places we can look to there's loads of incredible ancestors who have done work in this in this place from kind of science fiction writers like mm. octavia butler um, through to, you know, just brilliant 
people on the ground who are building the future today. Um, but one of the metaphors that I find really inspiring in the space um, is uh, something that uh, Adrian Marie Brown um, uh, said to me in an interview I did last year. And she used the metaphor of the Grand Canyon. Um, and But thinking about the Grand Canyon of history and of how um, she likes to think of uh, the systems we live in today as different strata in the Grand Canyon, mm. and how one day um, capitalism, white supremacy, uh, consumerism will all just be layers. They'll just mm. be strata, and they'll just be artefacts. They'll be fossils from the past, and mm. they will be the strata of the new systems that we've built on top of them. Mm-hmm. And I love that metaphor. I, mm. I It enables me to see the systems that we live in now, the destructive systems that we live in now, mm. in the past, in the rear viewer, Lovely. as opposed yeah. to being trapped in them. Absolutely. Lovely. And before we get onto story principles, which is my next question, I suppose the question that I think we have to ask listening to that is, what is the danger, though, of building systems on top of destructive systems? What is the danger of building new systems on top of old destructive systems? Is there one? I mean, I don't know what alternative we have. Mm. You know, we live, we've all, we are part of the world, the natural world, which has always evolved and, um, you know, grown in yeah. the context of what's there. So, yes, there are dangers, um, but it's also what we've got. Good point. There is literally no other way around it. Um, that's what you get when you go too conceptual and forget about the real world for a second. <laughs> okay, can you walk us through some of these main story principles that you're working on and then we'll get to your project on time? Yeah. Um, yeah, so as I talked about before, um, I find it really helpful to think about what are some of the principles of stories that will support regenerative futures. And for lots of the principles. These are not new principles. They are very ancient principles. They will be found in uh, different cultures across the world. Um, some of them uh, have their origin in indigenous culture. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, so I just want to be really clear, like I am not inventing anything here. Um, and I think a really important question, you know, one that I'm always very thoughtful about is is how we use um, principles from other cultures in a way that isn't appropriative. Mm-hmm. And especially in the context of indigenous wisdom at the moment, um, there is such a kind of almost like a pillaging trend for yeah. the use of indigenous wisdom. And I think, you know, given the way that so many indigenous communities are literally fighting for their lives today, yeah. that any of us who is um, who, who, who's benefiting from their wisdom, who's trying to use it in their work today, we also have to be contributing to their very real struggle for existence mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. before I go into any of this, like it's really important to say that yeah um so and on that you know a a key story principle is one of interconnection you know these are um if we look way back to hunter-gatherer societies so many of their stories uh had like interconnection was a core part of it um this idea of nature as a nurturing parent of enabling us to really feel part of the web of life that we are in Um, And to really be able to start to uh, connect with the more than human. Um, So to kind of move beyond the anthropocentrism and and feel, start to feel what it might mean to be another creature. And there are lots of, you know, there are ways 
There are very deep ways we can do that, but there are kind of lighter ways we can do that. And we're seeing it happening. You know, this is happening all over the place now. And, and it's something that actually children's books have done been doing for a long time. You know, we've been creating characters out of animals. And yes, we've been making them human and <laughs> there's loads of problems with that. But, you know, it's also, it's, it's, that there's something in us, I think, especially as children, that kind of very naturally feels that kinship towards the natural world. Um, and that is, again, that is something that gets um, pulled out of us. So interconnection um, is one principle. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, longer, as I've spoken about, and I'll talk a bit more later, but um, a longer time frame, um, long, living in longer, deeper time. Um, a larger us. So um, Alex, who wrote The Myth Gap, has gone on to form an organization called The Larger Us or A Larger Us. Um, and this is all about like how do we extend our empathy mm. beyond beyond ourselves as individuals, beyond our tribe? Like how do we start to care more about others and people who are different to us? And species who aren't us so this Mm. idea of a bigger us so interconnection a longer time a bigger us and then a different version of the good life you know so many of our problems today come from the stories that capitalism has sold us about what happiness is and what we should be aspiring to and what the good life is and we are seeing in so many ways how I mean they don't even work for the majority by their own principles but but they also actually so many of the things they're peddling don't lead to greater well-being for people don't make people happy so how do we start to tell stories of the good life which is about a genuinely good life for most people mm-hmm. and and if we think of the amount of money that is put into um well put into consumerism which is telling us exactly the opposite of that then you know as you said at the start we need so many different kinds of stories telling us about so many different kinds of good life like all of this it's like there's not one story of the good life there's not one story of interconnection there's not one story of expanding our capacity to empathize like Mm. we need so many different kinds of stories told to so many different kinds of audiences by so many different kinds of people um and kind of uh, one of the principles that underpins a lot of this is this idea of stewardship um, mm. and and how we can start to believe that firstly, as humans, we're not intrinsically bad. We are not yes. intrinsically damaging to nature. You know, there's this kind of, I really object to the Anthropocene as a as a concept because what we do with that is we conflate humanity with capitalism it's not mm. humanity that's destroyed the world it's a particular economic system um and the more we do that the more we conflate humanity with capitalism the less we become able to move out of capitalism so the more we tell our stories that who we are mm. as humans are you know we're greedy we're destructive we're competitive um then, you know, if, if that's the story we're telling, if we're saying, you know, humans, I mean, I hear it, I've, I've heard it a lot in the environment movement, you know, well, we don't, maybe we just don't deserve to live on this planet, the world would be yeah. better off without us, etc. Whereas actually, you know, lots of human cultures have lived in uh, an incredibly harmonious relationship with their environment. And as humans, we don't have to be, uh, we, you know, we're just not inherently destructive in that way. It's culture and story that makes us so. 
And so I think it's so important that we understand that because, you know, on the one hand, we've got like a global environment movement that is really at this time trying to engage millions, if not billions of people to secure, secure all the things they love, to secure the future of all the things they love. And then at the same time, quite a lot of that is then telling people, but you're bad, you're destructive, you're, yeah. you know, and, and we can't, we're not going to have the mobilization that we need if that's the story we're telling about humans. Um, so I think the more we can step into stories of being stewards, um, I had a conversation with Tyson Yunkaporta last year and he had this amazing phrase. He was like, maybe we're just in a very janitorial moment in the history of our species and it's our job to be like the janitors <laughs> like to keep the lights on to clean the toilets to clean the to to clean the hallways to keep it going for future mm. generations and how do we have the humility to step into that kind of stewardship which right. will you know can be very beautiful and you know isn't literally <laughs> cleaning toilets mm. um but so so i think that they are really important principles um but then the other side of this work, because all of this can sound quite kinds of idealistic, is being incredibly pragmatic about how we work with story to reach a lot of people. Um, the I, I did some research uh, recently for a presentation and I was so shocked around the data on TV use and uh social media like and I'm someone I, I got to admit I watch a lot of tv it is my guilty pleasure um uh I, you know I really trashy tv I adore um but in 2020 the average uh minutes of viewing per day in the UK was five hours and 40 minutes five of television 40 minutes of tv a day and then social um, media would be on top of yeah that. and well well yeah. I mean it could yes if you're not watching video um yeah. And then the other, the social media fact uh, I found was that 58% of the world's population use social media. The average daily usage is two hours and 27 minutes. And so that, you know, we can't just be idealistically talking about principles of interconnection and a longer time without then engaging with the way stories are going to reach audiences. And that is why all of the work that is starting to really take off around engaging popular culture, engaging entertainment is is an essential part of this. And I guess for my work, I'm kind of like, I'm partly in this, in the myth space, and I'm partly in the incredibly pragmatic space about, okay, now what? Now how do we work with people who are making stories that reach huge numbers of people to ensure that these kinds of principles actually get out in the world? Mm -hmm. Amazing. There's a couple of things that I want to um, discuss further, a couple of um, points that you raised. The first was the completing uh, humanity with capitalism. I love that idea of the more that you do that, the harder it is to, to leave capitalism. That is logical and, and I adore it. However, the one thing that I worry about um, as we all move, fo move forward is sort of uh, pinning all of the, the the blame on capitalism as an economic system. Um, whereas I think we need to be aware that there is something in uh, our history of organization, perhaps since the uh, agricultural revolution, perhaps since I don't know when, I'm not very good at history, but that does kind of have this growth impetus built in in Western culture. 
Um, so if we sort of took capitalism away but didn't quite address the fact that there is something in our organisation that needs to change, and one would obviously assume that part of that would be taking capitalism away, that work would be done. But still, I think it is very important to highlight. Like, I don't think that we are victims um, historically of our economic system. Perhaps now is the wealth gap um, just sort of gets completely out of hand and really reveals itself um, as what it was, the system for what it was created, which is to benefit the elites. Um, but nonetheless, there is something in Western history, Western civilization, Western organization that does have this growth imperative seemingly built in. Um, and the second thing, and we'll talk about that, I would love to, but the second thing is also this um, harmonious with nature narrative. I think it is a beautiful narrative. I think it, there are huge elements of it that are really, really critical uh, especially to combat this sort of alienation from nature that we currently exist in. Nonetheless, I do think that there is still a kind of um, almost anthropomorphic narcissism in it. Um, I was listening to an audiobook uh, with David Deutsch, and he was saying, <laughs> he was like, Na nature doesn't care. Like, the system as a whole does what it can to survive. But nature does not care about us as individuals, doesn't care as any one thing as an individual. Um, and therefore, that is why like the stewardship, I think, is so key, because actually it does take active work. Indigenous populations that live in harmony with nature, it is not because it is sort of this Garden of Eden premise that I think a lot of people think about when they hear harmony with nature. No, no, no. It is like eons of cultural wisdom uh, passed down about how to behave, when to behave in different um, seasons, what to do with certain plants, um, how to also engage politically with nearby tribes. Like it is a very active political and social and cultural system still at play. Um, so I worry sometimes, I suppose, um, that the singular message that we get through in either of those stories for people that maybe aren't paying attention is, A, it's all capitalism's fault, and B, our natural state is harmony, so don't really worry about it because we'll get there. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not, well, it's not all capitalism's fault, but, you know, you can go back and, you know, most of the people living under feudalism wouldn't have been that. I mean, they it was the world that they knew but it mm. was not a world of um freedom uh, and wealth for the majority sure um yeah. and yeah you can go back to the dawn of agriculture to really look at how hierarchy started to develop in human yeah. societies for sure and you know we suddenly you know previous to that uh, our existence had depended on our ability to share to cooperate yeah. and suddenly with agriculture our success becomes about our ability to kind of hoard yes <laughs> and so we have the birth of hierarchy yeah. and the birth of, of stories that really um enable that hierarchy yeah um and and yeah i think the idea of growth is um i don't know you know we can take it whether we want to take it to kind of pre pre-colonialism but it's mm. it's not it's not that old the idea of growth as we perceive it and then the way we have reified growth i mean mm. that is just that is a you know greta calls growth the you know a fairy tale she when she berated those leaders for why do you believe in this fairy tale of of endless economic growth yeah like not even a child would believe that and yet yeah. it's what we base our economy on it's still <laughs> insane mm -hmm. like, and even today mm -hmm. you know like in the uk 
everything is uh, a lot of the politicians are talking about you know growth again you know growth is always <laughs> what we talk about mm. and we just let any human can understand that endless growth is not possible yeah. so i think you know i think it's really important that we are very critical um with with how we think about growth i don't to be honest i don't know how far back it goes uh mm -hmm. i had um a really interesting conversation with jason hickel um you know about degrowth and looking mm -hmm. back into the history of that um and you know and he particularly talked about that gap from you know feudalism moving into capitalism so i think mm -hmm. Yes, um, capitalism, capitalism, capitalism isn't the origin of all of our problems, but we really have to not conflate what it means to be human with what it means to be living in capitalism. Absolutely. Like, and we have a tendency, understandably, to do that. So in terms of um, our ability to connect with nature, absolutely. Like, this isn't about anthropomorphizing. And that's why I was like, children's books, you know, aren't, aren't mm. the best example, because that's what they mm. do. And yes, you know, nature, I mean, nature cares about us in the extent that we are hurting it or supporting it mm, um, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, in whatever way that that particular species can uh, have any consciousness around who we are. So it's totally, mm. yeah, it's not about, I don't know, some kind of romantic, some kind of romantic mutual love affair with nature. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think it is about listening. You know, for me, mm. it's about what are the stories that enable us to listen to the environment we are in more, to become yes. more aware of it. We've become so divorced from it um, that we, mm. you know, and I think that is part of the work. It's, so it's stories that help us listen, that help us sense. Um, my son is, you know, my 20 month old is obsessed by cars. You know, he's got two parents working on climate and he is totally obsessed <laughs> by vehicles. Like some of these, he's not, doesn't have a large vocabulary, but it consists of like cars and lorries and vans and bikes and, and like his favorite place is sitting in a cafe by a roundabout so he can spot the buses. <laughs> So Amazing. like in, in an effort to try and kind of counter that, I'm playing him. I've got a book that plays birdsong. Um, and so it has like a picture of a bird on the page and then um, you can listen to the birdsong. And um, and it's like he's, he, he recognises crows now. He, he, he oh, can hear cool. the birdsong of a crow and recognise it. Um, but the point is, I'm listening. I'm, I'm reading this book a lot and listening to it. And I am starting to hear birdsong in ways that I haven't before. Mm. And I think... And that starts to change the way that I am in the world. So I mm. think this work about connection with nature, um, having a relation, different relationship with the more than human, yeah, isn't isn't about some kind of yeah mutual romance. Okay, cool. I just, as I said, it's um, I think it's just sort of the some of the message that I think gets gets taken away, and I think it's actually couched still in that capitalist sense of entitlement. That yeah. we are entitled to an environment and therefore, you know, if we just do X, Y and Z, then all of a sudden things will be harmonious. Whereas actually, I, nothing has any entitlement on this planet, actually, as we are seeing. Life fights to grow. Uh, the planet is currently fighting to survive thanks to our um, actions within our own environment. And therefore... That is why I just absolutely love the concept of stewardship. This idea that it is a relationship and therefore it is mutual. Yeah. Like nature does not owe you um, health and well-being. But by being in a dynamic relationship with one another, you can provide that for one another and therefore your wider community and therefore the wider community of all the species that we share this planet with. And please. Yeah, well, and if that's the case, what are the stories that we need to tell? 
Yeah. And I think, and, and understanding that the stories that we tell, so if we can find a way of telling collective stories around stewardship, that will influence our policy, it will influence yeah. our economy, it will influence yeah. our politics. Like our stories are the soil from which everything else mm. grows. And I think it's really important that we are aware of their potency because as you highlighted at the beginning, there are many powerful vested interests who know this and are using it and and we need to do the same. If you know if we want there to be soil, you know, mm. in in the medium term, if mm if we really want there to be a flourishing future on this planet. Are there any stories that you could share with us today? Or as you said, you're working on these story principles rather than actual narratives. Yeah, I definitely don't have a story in my <laughs> head. Um, yeah, a lot of a lot of the work that we've been doing, um, I guess the work around um, with the Long Time Project mm. has been around thinking about what it means to be a good ancestor. So we, Ooh, some of that work has been about helping people think about legacy differently. So perhaps instead of stories, I'll, I'll ask some questions because these are these are questions that we ask ourselves and others. So. Um, Oh, and if I have time, actually, there is something I might yeah, be able to do. But let's let's first do okay. um, the questions. Um, so, uh, so one of the questions is thinking about who are the ancestors um, who have preceded you professionally. So, who are the people whose shoulders you are standing on with mm -hmm. your work, and what have they left for you that has helped you? Mm -hmm. So what have your professional ancestors left you that has helped you? How is it to think about having colleagues who haven't been born yet? What are the things you'd like to leave for your unborn colleagues that will help them with the work that they're doing, taking forward what you're doing today? How does it feel to be part of an intergenerational lineage of people how does it feel to be part of this lineage of people stretching back stretching far forward into the future um and what does that mean for the work that you're doing today and so we ask these questions to help you know so much of the work we're doing is so incredibly urgent and and it's undeniably urgent like there's no mm. getting away from it and Approaching it with an attitude of myopia and urgency won't always lead to the fastest, best way forward. And so there's this paradox that I think we often have to look backwards and forwards um, and do something that feels like it might be a bit slower to mm -hmm. move forward in the most effective way. Mm -hmm. So that's one story. And it is a story. That's just mm -hmm. a story we've made up. Um, I mean, if I've got time, what I could do is uh, share one of the long-time practices that we um, use, uh, which are ways of um, getting people to move across time. Uh, it, but it will take about seven minutes. So in either if we you've can... You've got time. I've got time. Yeah? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. I'd love that. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so this is a practice that with the Long Time Project, we use 
something like this at the beginning of every session. Like, and like the Canadian government asked me to run this session with like thousands of civil servants the other month. And I came and I began it with this, um, a slightly longer version, you know, like a, then I did a kind of 10 to 15 minute meditation. Mm. And part of me was like, oh my God, they're going to think you're such a weirdo. They're going to think you're this crazy hippie. But actually I've done this kind of work with policymakers now all over the world. And mm. And in terms of narrative and story, I found that if I don't do it, their engagement is is just is less. Mm -hmm. And how important it is to begin with story and emotion. So this is going to be a bit like a meditation. Um, so if you are listening, um, I invite you to close your eyes and to relax your shoulders and to become aware of the breath moving in and out of you. To feel the ground beneath you. And to be in this moment. Now I invite you to bring to your mind's eye someone you care about of your grandparents' generation. It could be a grandparent, it could be a great aunt or uncle, or an older person you feel warmly towards. They may be with us or not. And as you're thinking of them, think of one particular quality they have that evokes warmth in you. It could be a habit they had, something that made them laugh, a quirk of theirs that makes you smile. Holding that in your mind's eye, in your head, step backwards one step. You're stepping back through the generations. Imagine that person at 40. How was that quality that evokes warmth in you present in them back then? And now in your mind's eye, take one more step backwards. And now you're stepping back in time to their ninth birthday. There's a party happening. There's food on the table. Where in the world are you? Where is this birthday party happening? You see the nine-year-old and again, take a moment to connect with that quality that evokes warmth in you. How is it present in them at nine? What are the things that are making them laugh? You walk over to the window and for a moment turn your back on the party. What do you see out of the window? What was the world like back then? When was it? It might be the 1920s or 30s, a bit later, a bit earlier. How are people getting around back then? Just take a moment to be in the past. Then a noise happens in the room and you turn back and you're back in the ninth birthday. And you're going to take your leave now. And in your mind's eye, you say goodbye and you step forwards one step through the generations and forwards another step so that you're back today in the present Take a few deep breaths again, letting go of that older person you've had in your mind. 
feeling the ground beneath you and arriving back in this moment. Now bring to mind a little person you care about. It could be a child, a grandchild, a niece, a nephew, the children of friends. And again, think of a quality that evokes warmth in you. It could be a funny habit they've got, the things that make them laugh, their smile. Take a moment to connect with them. And then, in your mind's eye, step forward one step into the future and imagine them at 40. How is that quality that evokes warmth in you present in them at 40? And holding them with you, step forward another step in time to their 90th birthday party. Take a moment to absorb the joy and celebration in the room. They're there being celebrated by their family and friends. How are they at 90? How is that quality that evokes warmth in you present in them at 90? You walk over to the window again and take a look out. What is the world like in the future? When is it? Maybe it's the end of this century, the start of the next one, maybe a bit earlier, maybe a bit later. What's going on outside the window? How are people getting around? What's the world like? You hear a noise and your attention is brought back into the party. You come back in and you noticed that there is a framed picture of you on the table. And that the person who is celebrating their 90th is, is hitting their glass with a fork and asking everyone to be quiet and then making a toast. And they're toasting you. And they're toasting you for something you've done that has contributed to their world. What are they toasting you for? Take a few breaths to connect with your legacy to future generations. And now you're going to take your leave and in your mind's eye, step backwards one step through the generations and another to arrive back here in the present moment. Let go of that younger person you've had in your mind's eye. Feel the ground beneath you. Connect with your breath. And when you're ready, slowly blink your eyes open and feel into what it's like to have walked across perhaps 200 years and to hold this question with you of, of legacy and what is your legacy to the future. Oh, that's so lovely.
that made me really emotional thinking about um my best friend's baby at 90 years old and imagining him all happy and well <laughs> oh yeah it's not it's a kind of story but it's a mm. it's a it's a story to connect us to the future um mm. and to help us and i i don't have time to go into how i developed this but um it was born of an experience i had with my nephew um where i suddenly realized that he was going to be an old man in the catastrophic world i was reading about um yeah. and i hadn't ever realized that i hadn't realized that uh, you know and this was a, this was 6 or 7 years ago that you know these doomsday predictions were going to be a world where people i loved were living in yeah and and now they're happening you know now it's it's happening today to to people we care about mm -hmm. but i think um yeah it's really powerful it's really it can be really powerful to understand that that when the ipcc puts out figures um that they are describing the world of of people and places and you know species that we love yeah uh, and that at its heart you know as as the work that dan and paddy are doing around stories for life um it is about how are we telling stories that support life not destroy it ella what a beautiful note to end on thank you so much my final question is of course who would you like to platform Oh, I mean, I, my problem is I can't think of one. Um, <laughs> you uh, can say as many as you want. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think for different reasons, because I think I love your forensic mind. So partly there are people I want you to speak to because I, um, you know, I want them to have to justify themselves. Um, and others are people who I think should, you know, be really nice if they had a platform. Um, so... Um, I mean, some of the, in terms of the former, I think it would be really interesting um, and perhaps you could um, work through the purpose disruptors uh, for this, but to get someone who uh, runs a big holding company or or a big advertising agency, mm -hmm. um, but, but one of the big ones who represent fossil fuel clients um, to talk about their role in creating the future. Um, I think so much interesting yeah. stuff is happening in this space at the moment. You know, the fact that the UN Secretary General yesterday called yeah. out the advertising agencies mm -hmm. um, and called them enablers. Um, and there's just incredible activism happening there. So I think, you know, hearing people put on the spot um, would awesome. be great. And similarly, in a more positive vein, I think it would be really interesting um, if we look at some of the big platforms um, like Netflix, Amazon Prime, etc., to hear people who are commissioning stories, um, and you know, commissioning stories that are trying to have an impact around the world, again, how how they see their role mm -hmm. when it comes to the stories for the future. So there's something about people who have access to scale with their platforms. Um, and then there are the people doing um, incredible work on the ground. Um, I mean, anyone from the imagination infrastructure movement, I think there's such great work happening there. If you haven't already spoken, have you spoken to Imi Kerr? No, I haven't. Oh, so, I mean, speak to Imi. The work she is doing in Birmingham um, is amazing. If you want to kind of experience what, like, neighbourhood regenerative futures look like, um, yeah, Imi. 
Um, so yeah, I, I feel like, um, definitely partly putting people on the spot, partly showcasing, um, incredible people doing inspiring grassroots work. Wonderful. Thank you for that. That is, um, I think that's the first time somebody said, go and get, go and get the bastards on the show. So, <laughs> well, you're Thank really, you. you know, you're really forensic and I think that's really important. Um, so yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Ella, this was such a pleasure. I still have tears in my eyes from that exercise. Thank you so much for making time for us and for ex walking us through all of your work. Um, I will put links to everything on the website where people can find you. Is there one like parting message you want to give people? Um, well, actually, there is one message. So we created the Longtime Academy, which is a podcast that is all about time. So Great. if this has whetted your appetite, um, please do go and listen to that. Um, one parting message. Yeah, I think there's a message about like what, like just for listeners to today, think about what are the stories you're living today? Mm -hmm. Just to like have an awareness, have, put put a like a pair of glasses with a story lens on and to start to become aware of what are the stories you're living? What are the metaphors that you're using? Mm. And they might they might be great stories and great metaphors, which is awesome. But it's just, I think the more we can become aware of how we are storied, um, the more empowered we can be about div living more uh, generative stories. Absolutely. Ella, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Ella's work, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly essays inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. As always, thank you to the Planet Critical community who support the show and make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week. <laughs>